You are listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 24th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK has another new Prime Minister, now seven weeks from outlasting the previous. Why is Iran aiding Russia in its hour of self-inflicted calamity? And has the venomous propaganda of Russian broadcaster RT delighted us all long enough? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Michael Binion will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from Russell Southwood about his new book chronicling the transformation of sub-Saharan Africa by mobile phones and the internet. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at UCL, and by Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Michael, we were just chatting about this beforehand in the waiting room. The last few days have been a few days of frantic rewriting by those of us in the journalistic trade. It it is outrageous, really, that we are expected to write things according to short deadlines (laughs) in response to breaking news. But but how mad has it been over on the Times editorial desk? Well, it has been pretty mad. I mean, yesterday was a very difficult day because we had decided that we wouldn't write about the Tory party as we've written about them almost every day for the past week, and I'm all about this. It's not like there hasn't been the material. Uh, There hasn't been the material. So we thought we'd we'd do the Labour Party instead. And then uh, at about six o'clock, the editor thought, no, we really do need to decide. uh, We need to give advice to Boris. Don't stand in this election. So we wrote uh, another editorial, Replacing Labour. And then at nine o'clock, well, that was completely superfluous as he decided not to stand. And so we had to write yet another one saying... Good that he's not standing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you have to change it all the time. You can sometimes tweak it, but when it's absolutely, you know, completely at odds with what you said, I mean, another newspaper, which I won't mention, but we're talking about the Daily Telegraph, uh, <laughs> they had the unfortunate thing of having a big, long article by one of the former cabinet ministers, Zahawi, saying why Boris should stand. And, of course, uh, at that stage, it was very difficult to pull it out of the paper at short notice. It has been a, a genuinely outstanding performance the last few days by Nadim Zahawi in particular. He was, of course, the person who Boris Johnson made Chancellor of the Exchequer, had been in number 11 for all of 48 hours before he told Boris Johnson he should quit, uh, and was seven weeks later saying Boris Johnson should get his old job back. I, 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 Nadim Zahawi hasn't taken a holiday recently. I suspect it's probably a good time. Um, Julie, has it been like this in academia, or, or does that all operate at a, a somewhat more relaxed pace? We could only hope that it did. I will say that it teaching. I was in the middle of a lecture on Thursday on uh, civil wars and suddenly this collective gasp went up from the class and I was like, oh, what did I say? And they're like, trust resign. So it's like, okay, do we talk about that now? Do we talk about this? So uh, so the students will keep you on your toes in the middle of a lecture. So, so are, are, we, are we gleaning from that that quite a lot of your students are gawping into their phones when they should be paying attention to your lecture? Yes, we can assume that safely, I think. Uh, well, I, I, I hope you had oh. a word. <laughs> uh, we will start tonight's show properly here in the United Kingdom, which has a new Prime Minister, although this feels less like headline news than it once did. It is, this week at least, former Chancellor of the Exchequer 
Rishi Sunak, who will go through on the nod after the remaining contenders for the job, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson and leader of the House of Commons Penny Mordaunt, withdrew their candidacies. It is seven weeks, give or take, since Sunak was defeated by Liz Truss in the previous Conservative Party leadership contest. Seven weeks during which Sunak's refusal to utter the words, I told you so, in public, have verged on the genuinely heroic. Well, I'm joined first of all by Monocle 24's Westminster watcher, Vincent McAvenny. Um, Vincent, first of all, do we know or can we guess why Mordaunt and Johnson bailed out? Well, I think we know that Penny uh, dropped out earlier on today because she clearly did not have enough support. She didn't get over that 100 threshold to then take it to a vote of the party members. When it comes to Johnson, it's much more murkier because his team were claiming on Saturday that he had over the 100 needed uh, to stand in this race. Uh, But then yesterday, when he put out that statement, he put out this weird phrasing that he said he'd had 102 backers, so claiming that he had enough, but it just wasn't the right time. But that means that either he, if he had well over 100 on the Saturday, he either lost some or he had just crossed 100 and then didn't gain any. So I think there's a lot of face saving from Boris Johnson here. I think if he had really got over 100 backers, he no doubt would have stood. Uh, It's a little bit of a preview of what it'll be like, I think, with Donald Trump, where uh, they think, oh, I'll go for it again. But when they start to do the maths and see that the numbers aren't actually there, they decide to save themselves the embarrassment. Well, let's talk a bit, uh, especially with a global audience in mind, about the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Rishi Sunak. You don't need to think back a long time to recall a moment at which he was barely heard of in this country. He's only been an MP since 2015. He is only 42 years old. Uh, Sort of seemed to arrive as Chancellor of the Exchequer when nobody else plausible was available. Um, How would you describe him to a world which is, is shortly going to have to get to know him as Prime Minister? Well, Ed Miliband, the former leader of the Labour Party, his words keep coming back to me because earlier in the year he taunted the then just departed uh, Chancellor Rishi Sunak, describing him as being like cryptocurrencies, like a Bitcoin. It came <laughs> from nowhere. No one understood where it was from, what it was really about, had a big, huge surge uh, and then went bust pretty quickly. But uh, in the case of Sunak, he has managed to bounce back in value for sure. Uh, he is going to be uh, the first uh, British uh, Prime Minister uh, from an Indian background. He is a Hindu as well. We have had um, a Jewish Prime Minister before. We have to go back to the Victorian area, but in Israeli we did have one. Uh, But this is the first sort of non-Christian one uh, since that time, many decades. So it is going to be a very different face for the UK. And I think one thing to note as well is that he is someone who, when he was brought in as Chancellor, was replacing his former mentor, Sajid Javid, uh, who basically took issue with Dominic Cummings, who was then Boris Johnson's chief advisor, saying that uh, he basically wanted to control the Treasury, that he wouldn't have control over his own spads, and so sacked him. And Rishi Sunak accepted the terms then by Boris Johnson that he could be Chancellor, but basically the Treasury would be run uh, from number 10, slightly out of his control. So he was someone who was pretty pliable to get into that position of power. So is he now someone who can really lead and exert the kind of control uh, that this government is going to need to get Britain back on track? Uh, And just finally, Vince, and how would we characterise his politics? He's, he's obviously a Conservative. He is now leader of the Conservative Party. But as we have been learning in recent years, there are Conservatives and there are Conservatives. What sort of Conservative is Rishi Sunak? 
The Conservatives like to say that they are a pretty big tent, uh, and I think that really has been proved this year. They are a massive tent, uh, all kinds in there, acrobats, lion tamers, everything. <laughs> uh, but they have been fighting, it has to say. And no uh, shortage of clowns. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, they have been fighting pretty strongly in that ring for control over it. With Rishi Sunak, I mean, it's not it's not massively clear. He is someone who is very sort of forward-facing. Uh, you know, you don't really think of him as kind of, as being the kind of, you know, country side uh, conservative, uh, you know, that we might picture. He's someone who's got a very interesting background, but he does pretty international. You know, there was this issue that he had a green card to the US. His wife was a nom-dom. Lots of speculation that when he quit as a chancellor, he actually wanted to just go live in America and, and work in tech in California and live that kind of life. So he is someone who has sort of global aspirations. It'll be interesting to see how big a role he decides he wants to play on the international stage, but he is going to be bogged down immensely by the financial mess left by Liz Truss. His options will now be limited on what he can do. I think for most people, though, here in Britain, there's a bit of sigh of relief. I've got to compare it to, in the past 24 hours, we've had just Brits returning to former roles. We've had David Tennant coming back as Doctor Who, because that <laughs> franchise is in trouble. Henry Cavill this afternoon coming back. He's announced as Superman, another Brit taking on a troubled franchise. And now uh, you've got Rishi Sunak coming back as well. Uh, you know, many people over the weekend you spoke to just couldn't put up with the idea of Boris Johnson coming back in. So I think most people here in Britain are just relieved uh, that that has not happened. Uh, and many people think that Rishi Sunak did a lot of good in the pandemic when it came to furlough and saving businesses. Not perfect, but did a good enough job by being bold. I think they'll be waiting to see if he can do something bold now. Vincent McAvenny, thank you as always for joining us. Let's bring Michael and Julie in on this subject. Now, um, Michael, first of all, it's I don't think there are many easy moments for a person to become prime minister of, of any country, really. It's a difficult job, as the previous incumbent has just spent seven weeks demonstrating. But it's a particularly difficult moment to become prime minister of the United Kingdom just now. What kind of prime minister do you think this country needs right now? And is Rishi Sunak capable of being that prime minister? You need a prime minister who is a pragmatist above all, who puts ideology to one side when it conflicts with the actual events that he sees around him and the figures that he has at his hand. So in terms of economics, he's just got to do what he knows with his experience as a banker and as a former Chancellor of the Exchequer will actually mitigate the dreadful economic situation that appears to be confronting us this winter in Britain. Uh, We've obviously got very high energy prices, we've got inflation very high, we've got uh, lack of foreign confidence and all those things. So he's got to be a pragmatist there. He's also got to be a realist about Britain's position in the world, in particular its position with its uh, nearest neighbours, the European Union, where relations have been very poor recently, made worse, I have to say, by Boris Johnson in office. Mm. Uh, He's got to sort out Brexit, which may have been uh, done as a deal, but it hasn't been translated into anything that's proved in any way beneficial to Britain yet, neither in trade terms, nor in uh, new freedoms or in anything. So he's got to be quite pragmatic about whether he's going to just go with the purest ideology on Brexit or whether he's going to try to modify things so that they work. Um, I want to come back shortly to that 
idea of the UK on the world stage and, and how Sunak will inhabit that role. But Julie, on the domestic front, what he what confronts him most immediately is the fact that a non-small number of people in this country are still, frankly, terrified about their, their household finances. They are terrified by energy bills. They are terrified by interest rates. There are a lot of people extremely concerned that they may not come out the other end of this winter still actually solvent. Now, it doesn't necessarily preclude somebody from making good decisions for the general benefit, but it is a fact that Rishi Sunak is rich. I mean, and I cannot overemphasize this, really actually properly rich, not just reasonably comfortably off like you would expect a posh bloke who went to Winchester and has had a good job in the city to be, but to most people, completely unfathomably rolling in it. Well, he is, and that's a point that many have made, but I would get back to something that Vincent said that during the pandemic, you know, we saw Sunak really go outside of typical conservative Mm. fiscal policy in terms of, uh, you know, things that would have been unheard of, say, in the U.S. or other other places with the furlough scheme, with other kinds of a direct, uh, you know, direct giving and spending that um, showed that I think he saw where at least some of the pain was being felt and was willing to kind of throw ideology out the window to fit the needs of the day. And uh, I think that's something that we obviously did not see trust do. And Michael and I were talking about this before, that you have to deal with the reality in front mm. of you. And so whatever your personal background, whatever your personal circumstances, um, you know, if you can, it, it, you don't need to really be a genius to see what's happening in the country and try and address that. And I think Sunak has shown that he's done that before. And we'll see if he does it again. Well, on that question of the UK now on the world stage, Michael, it's a, Vincent made this point and it, it will make Sunak an object of curiosity abroad. He is the well, arguably the second prime minister from a visible ethnic minority yes. that this country has ever had. He's certainly the first person of colour to have led this country. One of very few people of colour to have reached high office in, in any European country, in fact. Do you think that does give the world uh, a reason, and should it give the world a reason, to look at the UK slightly differently? Yes, I think it does, and it should. And it's very that's one of the very welcome things about the fact that he's achieved his appointment purely on merit and on his ability, not as a token, uh, not as some kind of uh, extra help for the fact that he came from an ethnic minority or anything of that kind. He's achieved it himself and he's there and the whole talk of, uh, I mean, all the recent campaigns about Black Lives Matter and other things which suggest that white society in general is inherently racist and biased in this, well, there doesn't need to be any answer to that. There simply is, look, uh, we've appointed somebody from an ethnic minority because he's the best person for the job. And that sends out a very good message. Of course, it sends uh, India into a a paroxysm of excitement (laughs) and they are now suddenly discovering, you know, one of ours, just as Kenya was very excited in discovering that Obama had a father who originally came from Kenya. I mean, it's the sort of feeling, gosh, you know, a a country far away actually has some links with us. Uh, I think it's a good symbol, but I don't think it in any way is a defining symbol for him or for Britain, and nor should it be. It's just a fact. Uh, And what matters now is what is his position on uh, Europe, on the world, on Britain's role as a senior member of NATO and things of that kind, where I have to say he doesn't yet have much experience.
Well, we will, of course, be keeping an eye on Rishi Sunak's first week as Prime Minister on the Daily all this week and his second week all next week, should he last that long. But let's look now at Ukraine and how new fronts in its war are opening in other countries entirely. On Friday night, an Israeli airstrike near Damascus demolished what was reportedly a facility assembling Iranian drones. It is plausible that this development is not unrelated to Russia's recent deployment of the Iranian-made Shahed-136 drone in Ukraine. France, Germany and the UK have demanded a UN investigation into Russia's use of Iranian drones. Russia and Iran, as is customary, deny everything. Um, Julie, this development, this Israeli airstrike near Damascus, is interesting on a few fronts. We should make clear that it is far from unusual in and of itself. Israel has been striking targets in Syria pretty regularly over the last few years. But Israel has been notably foot-draggy re-actually helping Ukraine. So was this Israel helping Ukraine or Israel helping itself? Well, there's a couple of things going on. And as you said, Israel has, uh, as much as they supported Ukraine uh, vocally and, and supported uh, the EU and NATO, they have said specifically, we're not going to send arms to Ukraine. That's been a policy. Mm. And that has been partly because they have a sort of um, agreement relationship with Russia in Syria to be able to carry out defense operations mm-hmm. there for things that they see as, as a security risk to them, which includes uh, Iranian arms going to Hezbollah and other actors. And I think they see this, um, you know, this development as, as linked to that as much as to the war. Um, They also have concerns. They have a very large um, Russian population of Russian Jews. There's concerns that Russia will try and crack down on that immigration. So Israel's been trying to kind of walk a fine line there. I think as Iran gets more aligned with Russia, that may be the one thing that actually does tip Israel a bit more into being a bit proactive on Ukraine. But uh, again, they have their own elections coming up in a few weeks. So I think some of that will probably wait until we see uh, kind of what happens with their own government. Uh, Michael, what's in this relationship for Iran? Is is it just that both Russia and Iran's regimes are in broadly similar positions, i.e. massive discontent at home, pointless wars abroad, nobody really likes them? Well, that's part of it, certainly. And it's also um, mutual help. I mean, Russia needs these drones. It's used them very effectively. They've been surprisingly effective because they haven't been able to shoot them down uh, as easily as they'd hoped in Ukraine. Mm. And they're not very expensive. Uh, And the Iranians seem to be making quite a lot of them. They've suddenly found a very useful export market. And equally, the Iranians need plenty of things from Russia. Uh, They could do with its political support in the UN, uh, in other in other words, vetoing some of the more uh, strident UN condemnations of Iran. They could use Russia as a strategic ally. They can use Russia to poke the eyes of the Americans a few times, which is a thing that the Iranians always like to do. And now so do the Russians. So there's a common cause in having a go at the West. And I think this is an alliance of um, mutual interest. Is there any point to that, though, Julie, which I know is a question we ask a lot about both Russian and Iranian foreign policy, the whole sort of diplomacy by, as Michael put it, pointing people, poking people in the eye? Is is it actually constructive? Is there an end point to any of this? Well, I think Iran is at a point where they are rather backed in a corner. They have very hard sanctions against them. The nuclear deal, which would relieve some of those, has completely stalled. And as we've talked about before on the show, you know, Iran is currently in a domestic crisis with protests completely rocking the country. So something like this allows for a point of distraction, a way to kind of flex the regime's muscles, and a way to kind of get some other states rallying behind them as well. Iran is claiming, I think, that Venezuela 
and Algeria and other states are kind of lining up for these drones. So it gives them a talking point beyond just protests and sanctions and a failed economy. Uh, Just as a final thought on this one, Michael, is there anything that can actually be done to dissuade Iran from building and exporting these drones to Ukraine in particular? I mean, you could argue that the Israelis have demonstrated one means uh, of dissuading Iran from doing this, but I, I suspect this is not the only production facility. Yes, that's a difficulty. I mean, just sending planes over to bomb the factories wouldn't be very effective. I mean, it would provoke a furious Iranian reaction and possibly also a Russian reaction. But uh, they are, they're not complicated things to make. I mean, it's not as if you're bombing the entire nuclear plant of Iran, mm. which is much more sophisticated. So uh, it wouldn't be that devastating. And I think um, that's basically all they can do because Iran would take absolutely no notice of any kind of UN sanctions because they're sanctioned already. I mean, they're, they're, they're actually at the moment are backed into a corner, so they've nothing to lose. Well, on a semi-related subject, getting booted off RT, the overseas propaganda arm of the Russian state, for overdoing the frantic, paranoid, genocidal headbanging is an accomplishment of sorts, like getting bounced out of the Vatican for going a bit heavy on the Catholicism. <laughs> Nevertheless, exactly this has been accomplished by RT presenter and executive Anton Krasovsky, who has been suspended by the channel for breezily suggesting the drowning or burning alive of Ukrainian children. Among those who believe this insufficient punishment is the government of Ukraine, which has suggested that it is well past time that RT was taken off air everywhere permanently. Julie, are they wrong? The Hmm. Ukrainian government, that is. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the story is obviously coming up now with these current uh, comments from the broadcaster. But the ban has been on RT, I think, since the spring in uh, the US and across the EU and the UK. So it's not really a Hmm. new question here. Uh, You know, Kiev is obviously trying to get this to go global, and I think that's a much higher stake. But this is actually something that's gone through, um, you know, legal processes in in Europe and has been held up as plausible. I I do think it's a a difficult line to draw and one that I think we should be cautious about uh, pursuing a kind of blanket and permanent ban. Um, Genocidal language is one thing, and that's something that we obviously have seen in Rwanda and other cases that we, you know, obviously try and and stop that when we can. But um, but that's a little bit different than RT's uh, usual uh, game. And I think uh, I think there's something to be uh, that we should should consider the differences between those two things. Michael, I confess myself to being a bit bewildered, possibly more bewildered by the suspension than by the fact that somebody should make remarks of that sort on RT. RT's editor in chief, Margarita Simonyan, has called uh, Mr. Krasovsky's comments disgusting. And you know, I think that's a that's an adjective that can be fairly applied to quite a lot of what she personally has had to say over the last eight months, especially. Yes, except that RT puts it out that it is a respectable broadcaster, that it does not pander to genocidal instincts or cruelty or anything that, you know, the UN could denounce as an obvious violation of human rights. Uh, the uh, propaganda put out is very much more political in tone, mm. and it's not uh, indulging in kind of stuff that would be censored by any person with any humanitarian thoughts. Um, So I think it's embarrassing for them, for somebody to to say things like that. And it's also a way of trying to improve RT's credibility. Is it it only embarrassing because somebody has said the quiet part out loud? Uh, I don't think that sort of policy is normal RT policy, though. I mean, it's, you know, it is a a proper broadcaster, if only one that is very, very heavily one-sided and broadcasting state propaganda. But it is a bona fide broadcaster. And there are a lot of people who say, well, all broadcasts should be allowed to go ahead. We can't 
broadcast, uh, we can't censor what people say, because if we start that, where do you draw the line? Uh, I think the ban at the moment is probably justified, but I'm a bit hesitant to say that RT should be, you know, permanently uh, attacked or sanctioned or whatever. And if they think that there are lines themselves they shouldn't cross, well, that's at least one thing. There is the question, though, um, Julie, about when a media outlet stops being an actual meaningful news agency and does just start being uh, a, a fairly rancid propaganda arm. And you, you mentioned there the example of, of Radio Milkalin in, in Rwanda in 1994, the medium through which uh, genocide was literally organised, orchestrated and launched. And I think probably you couldn't accuse RT of that just yet, but they are a lot closer to that line than you would want to think anybody would want to be, wouldn't, aren't they? I mean, again, I would say, I would agree with Michael. They're, they're a network with a long history. I think uh, they're a place that I don't do interviews for RT, and I think a lot of other people don't as well, but they a lot of people do. Mm. Um, and I would say their past coverage, again, very pro-Russia, very pro-that slant, but it's uh, different than being, um, you know, uh, calling for violence, giving direct Directives, like the kinds of stuff that we've seen in other cases where media was really used to orchestrate a genocide. Again, the idea of being a mouthpiece for the Russian uh, for the Russian government during the war, being this outlet propaganda. I can see the temporary bans, that kind of thing, uh, pushing you know the um, different kind of outlets and uh, and platforms to try and, and limit their uh, reach. But in terms of um, just complete banning them, I, I agree. I think it's I think it's gets very tricky with. Um, how do you draw that line? And already we saw Russia respond to that back in the spring with blocking BBC and a lot of Western outlets to mm. their viewers. And I think that's just dangerous to play with the free flow of information that is not um, directly calling for violence, even if it is misinformation, propaganda, etc. I mean, the BBC uh, has still is still in Moscow. And I think this is a tacit agreement. Well, not not agreement, but the Russians understand that the moment they ban the BBC, their correspondents here in London would be out the next day. And they still find it useful to have people reporting from London, if only reporting the sort of news they want to hear, you know, chaos and mayhem and whatever. But uh, uh, both of them realise that there is a value in having uh, the uh, opposition, as it were, in your own capital reporting what you do. Uh, just a final quick thought on this, Michael, because it, it does bring us back to British politics. Um, you were talking there about people who have appeared on RT, and this has tailed off quite a lot in the last eight months, but it had not tailed off in the previous eight years. And the, the role of shame of British politicians who have turned up on RT and cheerfully done stuff for RT uh, goes across the political spectrum. It includes, and these people should all be thoroughly embarrassed, Ken Livingston, Nigel Farage, Jeremy Corbyn, um, Alex Salmon, David Davies, David Lammy, Johnny Mercer, and they are far from alone. Aside from RT's allegedly generous appearance fees, what on earth were they thinking of? Well, there is an argument that RT at one point was quite well listened to. Uh, it wasn't quite so propagandistic 10 years ago. I mean, it's since Putin decided it would be an arm of state propaganda, that it really has taken this much sharper, harsher and nastier tone. Uh, and there was a feeling that it was quite professional and that people actually, by going on RT, would be able to spread the message, you know, within... Uh, the Soviet, sorry, <laughs> pre former Soviet era, era area, uh, and that um, Russians would listen to it, or English-speaking people would listen to it, and listen to you know reasonable politicians saying reasonable things perhaps even contesting some of the points made by broadcasters on RT. So they, you can see why have, they, they did. They didn't have to take the money, though. 
Well, no, but then, I mean, uh, you know, everybody broadcasts for money mostly. I mean, would I be sitting here if there was no fee? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that there's a measurable distance between Monocle 24 uh, there and is. There is. There is a very big distance. Just about. Um, well, moving along, uh, here in London, meanwhile, we are enjoying a relatively balmy early winter with the promise of further temperate conditions to come. And though we haven't reinstated the Daily's weather report, one for the OG listeners circa 2012 there, this is probably bad news, grand scheme of things, but it is a welcome relief from our energy bills and it turns out maybe slowing or delaying an exodus to Spain which is kind of hoping for an influx of people wishing to escape both the cold and the bailiffs. Spain has an exception within the EU to decouple the price of gas and electricity which apparently, it says here, makes its energy bills relatively cheap. Julie, are you tempted by Benidorm? <laughs> I, I feel like what's the reason not to go? I mean, energy bills are part of it. Why why else wouldn't you want to go? Uh, I, I, I can definitely see the appeal. And uh, I think it probably hurts Brits uh, a bit with, with Brexit even more when you see things like this that are much easier now for much of the continent than it is here. Because uh, packing up and uh, going to southern Spain sounds pretty great right now. Have you ever been seriously tempted by such a course of action, I, either here or back in the United States? Did you did you dream of a gated community in Tampa Bay? <laughs> well, I will say I wrote part of my dis- dissertation from a friend's house in Costa Rica for the January to March uh, months one year. And uh, that was one of the best choices I ever made, so I can endorse it. This is yet another reason, Michael, why we should have got jobs in academia <laughs> ra- yes. rather than journalism. Yes. Um, have you ever been tempted by the the moving away to somewhere basically because it's warm, whether it's Florida or, or <laughs> Queensland or the Costa no, del Sol? No, I've had the luck to work in places that have been fairly warm. I've also had the luck to work in Moscow when the temperature in winter was minus 40, so that wasn't quite the same thing. Uh, but uh, the problem is, if one went to Spain, I can see those who are not working, those who are, uh, have pensions, don't, can't afford high energy bills, enjoy the sun and can stay there. But if I went to Spain, would I be able to appear on Monocle? Well, we, 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 we have Zoom, we have Skype, yes, we have, we have yes, all of this. Same, we have all of this stuff, <laughs> not the same. You, I mean, most people just can't afford to do that. They can't. Uh, working from home works in some areas, but not really for most people. And living permanently in Spain, well, there are all sorts of other considerations. You know, you're far away. Uh, if If you just took the winter season, say a month, when it was at its coldest, and in fact you pr- probably could get some pretty cheap rents, some hotels, you know, where you would actually not spend much more than if you were at home. So that might be possible, but I think it would be for a limited time. The Times isn't advertising for, and you couldn't sell them on a Marbella correspondent? Well, we we actually have two or three correspondents in Spain, and they're there all the time. <laughs> well, just finally, before uh, we let you go, have, have either of you, and I'll start with you, Julie, developed any energy-saving tips or techniques over the last few months? Oh, um, let's see. I well, I will say in the U.S., uh, hot water bottles are like not a thing. Like if you tell someone they're a hot water bottle, they like have no idea what you mean. I've invested in one. I put it in my bed every night. Love it. So <laughs> I'm like spreading the word to all the Americans. Have you tried? Because I have friends who swear absolutely blind by these things. Those weird bags full of oats that you put in the microwave. Oh no, I have not tried that. Uh, apparently, I am told it is like a a hot water bottle, but but they're lasts very good. longer. They're very oh, good. They're, yes, yes. We have another endorsement. Yes, yes, I, I've okay. seen those. Yes. So um, is that your answer to the question of well, what energy saving tips yeah, you have discovered? I don't really sort of. I just use a 
you know, a night, a big duvet, that's enough. I mean, I don't, don't want it boiling hot. Um, and I don't, I quite like it fairly warm when sitting around in the evening. And I'm afraid I'm not actually turning the thermostat down very much at all yet. But then it hasn't been that cold yet. So um, if it's really freezing, put on another jersey. That's the simplest and quickest. Well, indeed. My, myself, I do quite like an open fire, which is much easier now that I've moved to a place that actually has a fireplace. Uh, <laughs> Julie Norman and Michael Binion. Thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's show, mobile phone and internet technology has had an incalculable effect everywhere, but nowhere has it been less calculable than sub-Saharan Africa, some of which, as recently as a few decades back, barely had any reliable communications. The arrival of the online realm has invigorated African banking, business, media, arts and politics. Mostly, it can be cautiously said, for the better. That transformation is chronicled in a new book called Africa 2. Inside a Continent's Communications Revolution by Russell Southwood. I spoke to Russell earlier. He began by outlining the mission of Balancing Act, the organisation of which he is CEO. It's a research and consultancy company which has been going for 22 years and we specialise in telecoms, internet and media in sub-Saharan Africa. And I started it because it seemed to me that in some weirdly perspicacious way, which was entirely unstrategic, that, that something was going to happen in communications in Africa. Well, and, and something very much did. Obviously, the kind of technology you're describing, mobile phones, mobile internet, smartphones and so on, has transformed the entire world. But you definitely get the sense from the book that it's arguable that it has transformed nowhere, quite like it's transformed sub-Saharan Africa. You mentioned that factoid in the introduction, which I'm not sure how scientifically it was ever proved that as recently as the mid-80s there were fewer phone lines in all of sub-Saharan Africa than Manhattan, but it is unrecognisable from that now. It is, and that, that is really why this story is so important, because over the 35 years from the first mobile operator launching in, in DRC, which was then Zaire, to mm. the present day... I think it's probably, it's attracted billions of dollars of investment and it's transformed people's lives. It's both an economic and a social story and people have taken the mobile phone to heart in a way that is kind of absolutely staggering. There was a woman who almost died from delivery complications in the early days of mobile, had her phone and didn't and named her son after the mobile company. <laughs> so you've got, you've got these kind of sort of both personal stories and a very strong economic story. But do did it develop differently in sub-Saharan Africa than, say, it did in Europe, which, as recently as the 1980s, already had very good old-school landline telecommunications infrastructure? So is it the case that it's been more of an evolution in Europe and perhaps a revolution in sub-Saharan Africa? Andrew, I think that's very true, because what actually happened was that um, instead of building fixed lines, the fixed line operators were all state-owned and very inefficient and very corrupt in some ways, um, the mobile operators energised a process of rolling out mobile phones, and to start with were quite sort of pessimistic about mm. the numbers that would be involved, but then they discovered prepaid calling, so in other words, people could pay for small amounts of calling up front, and it just exploded. And and I think the same was very true of mobile money. Mobile money was almost invented by Africans who discovered that if you took a voucher for prepayment, you could transfer that to someone else and began 
a process which led to the the arrival of M-Pesa, which is the very famous mobile money service that Safaricom launched in Kenya. You mentioned that such telecommunications as there was tended to be provided through government monopolies. That being the case, how were private operators able to get up and running with such alacrity? Were the governments just asleep at the switch and didn't understand what was going on? No, it was a process, liberalisation and privatisation. The more successful of the two is liberalisation. And the World Bank and others encouraged states in Africa, as indeed in other parts of the world, to both privatise these inefficient monopolies and to bring in new private capital to create licences and to create regulation that would allow the rollout of these private operators. Have we not seen any tension between that and between especially the more authoritarian governments in sub-Saharan Africa, because the sort of stuff you're describing, people being able to freely communicate, freely trade outside of any official oversight, that's the kind of thing that usually terrifies the absolute bejeebas out of authoritarian regimes. They don't usually like it. It's very interesting. I, I think because many of the rulers are older and less technologically aware in the early days, mm. it wasn't until about the, the, the mid-2000s that Mozambique shut down SMS because they, they felt that people were organising food price demonstrations. And then Ethiopia closed SMS for two years. But now there is a steady pattern of closures of the internet around election results. And sometimes it's the closure of social media as well by blocking. So increasing African rulers have become both very aware of this in a negative sense of closing things off, but also in a positive sense, because nearly all the presidents are on social media in some way and have quite significant followings. And not so long ago, the now just departed president of Kenya came off of social media because he said he, he got too upset and, <laughs> and couldn't rest easy at night. <laughs> the revolution you're describing in communications and in banking in particular and the, the ability to transfer money, can you quantify the knock-on effect that has had into other sectors? Because I'm thinking back myself, and this is going back 15 or 16 years, so I guess prior to the most recent sort of revolutions in smartphones and so on, but just talking to some people in Cameroon and trying to get a sense on what the business environment was like. And I, I remember asking them about the processes that they would need to go through in order to get a hypothetical new business up and running. And they talked me through, I'm sure you've heard many similar stories, they talked me through the bureaucracy, the connections, the everything you would need to do by the end of which, of course, everybody's just lost the will to live and given Absolutely. up. Are you seeing the revolution you describe in the book as bringing any of those barriers down? Yes, absolutely, because it, there was a precursor to, to the famous M-Pesa in Kenya, which was called CellPay, that was set up seven years before M-Pesa by a company called Celtel. And the guys in Celtel got onto it because they were stuck in a car leaving DRC, and they saw this man standing by the side of the road with great piles of banknotes and a mobile phone. And what he was doing was ringing somebody in another city, and they would agree to make a transfer, and that he tried trusted the guy in the other city. So they thought, blimey, there must be an easier way of doing this. Why don't we do it on mobile phones? And that was sort of the beginning of it, really. And I think, I think it has brought down those barriers, not least in terms of funding from the diaspora, because the enormous sums of money that come from mm. Africans who live overseas actually is a larger sum of money than is put in by development agencies. So it's been very significant. And not, not only does it make that much easier within the continent, so cocoa workers, 
workers in Cote d'Ivoire are able to send money home. Mm. Miners, Lesotho miners in, in South Africa are able to send money home. Not only that, but also it enables the money to transfer much more cheaply because the processes are much more competitive now and it's not just Western Union and, and one other. It's Now there's a whole lot, so the percentage charged has come down. So it's, it's had a very significant effect. All that said, I was struck by, and this isn't a spoiler, but I think it's, it's towards the conclusion in the book or in the conclusion in the book that there's one part of Africa, a big part of Africa, that this liberating wave has not quite reached, which is Africa's women. You write about the fact that there is still an enormous gender division in phone ownership and internet access. And is that bad enough that it might end up actually entrenching gender inequality if disproportionate numbers of men are able to access this brave new world while women cannot? A large part of it is, can't describe it any other way, the patriarchy. It is, mm. is how men behave structurally and, and therefore is quite difficult to shift. The other two parts of it are education and income and the degree of control women have over these things. I think over time, as education gets better and literacy gets better and all those things get better, this divide will shift. But I have to say that the not necessarily definitive piece of work that the GSMA does on it over the last three years, the needle really hasn't shifted. And that's true to some extent globally too, where the shifts that were happening in the beginning are now coming down. If we look ahead finally to what the next five to ten years may be like, and that already strikes me saying it out loud as an unconscionably long time to try and anticipate such as the the leaps that technology can make, do you see it necessarily as being entirely positive or one-way traffic? Could we, for example, reach a point at which some of sub-Saharan Africa's more authoritarian-inclined governments start stamping all over this? I think it's like all these things, it's, it's, it's a work in play. And mm. that if you look at it, I think one of the striking things is that technology, when it's appropriated by people, can do very positive things. But culturally, they have to be inclined to do that. They have to want to use the technology. And sometimes the analog barriers, which are those barriers to business that we talked about earlier, those are the things that have to be shifted, not to have faster, smarter technology, though technology can sometimes be the thing that brings that about. That was Russell Southwood, author of Africa 2.0, Inside a Continent's Communications Revolution, which is available now. And that's all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Julie Norman and Michael Binion, also to Vincent McAvenny. Today's show was produced by Marcus Hippie and researched by Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.